Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. And where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. The word of the Lord. Amen. You can have a seat and we'll dismiss our school-age kids to the back with great enthusiasm and excitement. And the rest of us, um, if you haven't already, let me invite you to open in your Bibles to... John chapter 14, as we continue in this study. Um, yesterday, we did have a, uh, a ladies' conference, and uh, the week before that, we had a little Saturday morning men's event that has kind of carried on into our equipping hour um, on Sundays for the next, uh, I guess, seven weeks. And God is doing a really unique thing in uh, some of the lives of our men and women. Week before that, we had our disciple now with our teenagers, and um, man, it is cool. This covenant's ten years old, and there are certain moments and seasons of pruning and fruitfulness, and I just kind of feel this like turning into uh, into this fruitful season. So, um, anyway, let's let's pray as we kind of prepare our hearts for God to speak to us. If all you did was listen to me talk up here, you wasted your morning. Would you pray silently as I pray aloud? And you might not even believe all the things. Would you just pray that the God of creation would speak to your heart 
and the next uh, and the next few minutes. God, I thank you for this uh, spiritual family, Covenant Church, and I thank you for all the friends and the people who've been uh, praying and have encouraged me even this week, encouraging one another and serving one another. Oh, what a beautiful thing it is to see the church at its best. What an ugly and scary thing to see the church at its worst. So, Father, will you help us know the difference? Holy Spirit, would you illuminate the face of Jesus as we study the word this morning? In Jesus, we know, even as in the text we read today, if we've seen you, we've seen the Father. Encourage those who are just beat down. Give fresh life for those who are weary and bring conviction for those who are walking in sin. Renew hope to those that are so discouraged. Bring healing. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. I guess it was uh, 20 years ago, maybe a little longer, that um, I asked Ashley to marry me. Yes, I know, right? I didn't know if I would get past asking her dad's blessing. You know, the, the cliche thing where dad cleans the guns. Well, he was doing that, and he was cleaning very big guns when I asked him for his blessing, and he was surrounded by knives and other things. Um, you ever been in one of those meals where you're sitting there, and it's a meal, but then something happens, and you know, oh, there's more going on here than what I had originally thought. And so... Um, I was excited. I had asked, uh, I had asked Bob's blessing, and uh, I was ready to pop the question. I bought the ring at a pawn shop, um, but I had it fitted into a, a new fitting at a real jeweler so it could come in a real box. And, um, and we went to a Japanese uh, restaurant in, uh, you know, the hibachi kind of thing, because nothing's more romantic than that. And... Um, <laughs> Nothing's more romantic than throwing shrimp and uh, egg at people. So uh, we went there. It was Ashley's birthday, and we went there, and I had kind of was trying to just find the right opportunity. I had, had several paths that we could go that night of, uh, of when to actually do it, and I got this big, you know, lump in my pocket, but it was 1998, and you wore really baggy pants, so no one could even know the difference. And... Um, and so we, we, get to, uh, we get to the restaurant and we're talking and I'm nervous and probably sweating and blaming it on the hibachi uh, grill there. And um, Ashley and I are talking and we are kids, man. We are, we are so, we're just kids. And uh, someone like at our little section, you know, you sit with a bunch of people you don't know, actually got down on one knee and proposed to his girl. And I was like, oh, wow, Really? And so then I had to spend the rest of dinner convincing Ashley how stupid that was. No one proposes at a hibachi restaurant, especially on someone's birthday. That is just the dumbest idea. And my mind racing trying to redeem myself. We later, we went by the lake and then I proposed actually in a church parking lot. That's what you give when you marry a preacher. Um, church we had met at and... Uh, the story loses its sexiness, really, at that point. Um, the context of John 14, we've been doing these I am statements of Jesus, and uh, we've got uh, this one and one more uh, left next week on Mother's Day. 
Um, but the scripture that was read, uh, the context means so much. And so I'm going to take about 20 minutes and kind of unpack the context of what's happening here. Starting in the beginning of John 13, of Jesus washing the disciples' feet, um, they are at a meal, a very specific meal, um, one that we call the Last Supper. And it was the Last Supper, but it was so much more than that. It would be like asking someone on December 26, how was lunch yesterday? You're like, oh, it's fine. You know, we had ham. But there was something more going on there. It was Christmas. It's steeped in tradition. There's all kind of other things that happen. And that's kind of what's going on here in the Last Supper. It was important because this was the Passover Supper. And this is where the entire Old Testament had been pointing to this one moment of Jesus revealed as the actual Passover lamb. So the Passover was one of the first celebrations that God ordained, commanded his people to celebrate every year. And it was to remember all that God had done as he rescued the people of Israel, God's people, out of slavery in Egypt and took them to a promised land. And if you know that story, uh, it took them 40 years to get there. There was a lot of sin and doubt and other things involved, but yet they actually did make it to that place. And so every Hebrew family would meet and celebrate this incredible holiday. It would be, we have nothing really compared to it. It would be like us taking Christmas and Thanksgiving and the 4th of July and wrapping it into one incredible week and all of it steeped in history and incredible things. So Jesus is at this specific meal and he had washed the disciples' feet and he is basically unveiling if they had missed it. He, kept, he keeps saying it. I'm the son of man. I'm the son of man. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. Look at me. Me and the father are one. Uh, again and again, he is just saying it and they keep missing it. And so he's going to get as clear as he ever, ever did in this one passage all around this idea of Passover. Now, each generation of Hebrew or Jewish people now still uh, participates in this very supper, this miracle of redemption, this celebration of uh, redemption from bondage, through all these tastes and sounds and smells all at the Passover meal. There would have been the unleavened bread on the table. There would have been a roasted uh, lamb, which wasn't present when Jesus was there because he would become the Passover lamb. Other symbols, ritual dippings in the bitter herbs to remember the taste of slavery. And there would have been four cups of wine. Now, I was going to use real wine, but my Baptist roots would not allow me. Um, so this is leftover coffee um, from the ladies' retreat yesterday. I'm not going to ask you to drink it. If you're wondering, it's not... There would have been four uh, ceremonial glasses of wine that they would have shared throughout about a six-hour evening, and all of them had incredible significance in them. And it all comes from uh, Exodus 6. God promises, he makes five, and uh, the Hebrew people really held on to four that really stood out. I will promises made by God to Israel, you can read it in Exodus 6, verses 6 and 7, but basically, he says, I will bring you out. I'm going to bring you out of Egypt. And they would have taken the first glass of wine and they would have talked and remembered how incredible it was that God brought them out of Egypt. And then they would have um, had some discourse. And then the second cup, I will free you, free you from your um, slavery. I will redeem you, the third cup. 
Literally means to buy back. Think about uh, Boaz and Ruth, the Goel Redeemer, the Kinsman Redeemer. We don't have time to go into that, but that's a whole nother. We, 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 could spend, we could spend literally a year of sermons just talking about just the third cup. I will redeem you. And then the fourth cup, I will take you as my people. I will make you my own. And so this is all going on in the midst of this supper and they're walking through the things and the bread and the wine and the discourse and the remembering just as they, they would. Jesus is picking up different items on the table. He's relating them to himself. Of course, there was no lamb because he was the Passover lamb. So he picks up the bread, the bread of affliction, and he says, this is my body broken for you. That was different. That's not normally what it said. This is my body. And the third glass of wine, I will redeem you. And he says, this is the new covenant of my blood that will be shed for you. And he dips his hand into the bitter herbs to remember the suffering of slavery. If you know the scripture, that's when Judas also dips in the same thing. And then Jesus looks at Judas and says, go do uh, what you're going to go do. In verse 1 of John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. This is a heavy time. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. And so that where I am there, you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. Now, Jesus is answering Peter's question about the way. And then in a minute, Thomas is going to ask a question about the way. But there's one more like crazy significant part to this. I I had a Hebrew professor when I was in seminary, uh, Dr. Steger. And he taught me Old Testament and Hebrew. And I took those things for two years, six hours every Monday uh, for two years. And he, he knew the Hebrew scriptures and the Old Testament so well. It just came to life and... Hopefully, if I remember correctly, some of the things I learned that I will impart just some of that so you can kind of see what's really happening here. The second like significant thing that's happening in the room is that those four I will statements from Exodus 6 that are part of Passover um, was really a marriage proposal or seen as a marriage proposal from God to Israel. And this is his promise, the promise of God to Israel. And so this became the common practice Uh, when you were going to get engaged, that you would say those four I will statements. And so it had this kind of romance even to it as the groom, uh, would-be groom eyeing his uh, potential bride, he would say these, these four things. There were really two parts of a, of a, of a Hebrew marriage proposal and, and wedding. The first part, called the erosin in Hebrew, actually makes the two legal, and it would be a contract that they would actually sign. Um, that, that if they were to depart from the contract, they would actually have to get a, a divorce. Then there was a long period in between, and then the third part was the actual wedding, the nisuin. When after the things were ready, they would come back, they would uh, officially uh, have a celebration and uh, then they would invite the neighbors over and um, just have a great time. So in this first part, there's some contractual things that have to happen. Now bear with me just a little bit. I think this is going to, I think it's going to be good for us to know. Because the bride was leaving her family, the groom's father would pay a bride price called the mahar. 
to the bride's father. So from the groom's father to the bride's father, the bride, the daughter's going to be leaving that household. So there was a bride price. And then the groom would give the bride a series of gifts called the matan, which would help her to wait for the groom to basically say, hey, I'm going to leave and go work and prepare our life together. But this is like, it'd be like our engagement ring, maybe something more significant, just so you could look down and remember that the groom is promising, hey, I'm going to come back. And after this, the groom would leave. And the groom, as the ritual would be, would go back to his father's house. And he would basically build an addition onto his father's place, which he and his new bride will live in. And sometimes, depending on his skills, this took a few months. Sometimes, depending on his skills and materials, this took uh, sometimes years. But it's during this time that the potential bride and groom are engaged or betrothed. They're separated from each other, but still legally married. She can't see any other suitors. Again, she'd have to get a divorce if she wanted to marry anyone else. She is waiting on her groom to return. And as the groom is working, like I said, neither he nor the bride knows when the actual formal wedding will be, the second part of that, because his dad is the one that decides when the room is ready. Because you could think about a young groom eager to go marry his bride and he might just go throw a few boards up and put a piece of tin over it and call it good because he is ready to consummate this marriage. But yet he didn't have the choice to say when it's done, the father would have to come in and he would have to say, yeah, you've done a good job. Um, Go get your bride. And then they would come in and share a ceremonial cup of wine once more, have this big celebration, the actual wedding, invite all the neighbors, that kind of thing. it's at that point the bride would receive her inheritance from her dad. Usually it was the bride price, the mahar that had been given. And then finally the consummation of the marriage and they're legally finally married. And this is why I tell you all this because this is the very language that Jesus is using. And it's lost on us because even in the story I told you, um, there was no bride prices paid. Uh, we give all of our gifts up front, um, the, the groom to the bride. We signify it with a wedding. We start laying out our storybook wedding. We invite all the people there. Um, but that's not the way this was happening. And so just so you kind of understand, the Passover, the four I will, and this uh, Jewish wedding proposal using those same I will promises from the groom to the bride. Now, this is all happening in Holy Week. This is the last week that Jesus would be on earth. And he keeps talking about this marriage language. On Tuesday, he taught about a parable of a king throwing a big uh, wedding feast for his son. And some of the guests don't come. Some aren't prepared. Then another parable about actual bridesmaids. Again, uh, the foolish and the wise bridesmaids who are prepared when the groom is to return and the party is to happen We don't know a lot about what happened on Wednesday. This is Thursday. He's picked up all the items on the table that would be in the wedding ceremony and the disciples still don't get it. And so Thomas kind of jumps to it in verse five. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Thomas just wanted to know the way. Lord, just tell us the destination. 
If you can just tell us where we got to end up out of here, then, then even if you leave to go and prepare a place and come back again, he didn't get the whole thing. The Jews actually leaving earth. He didn't understand all that. Um, just tell us where to go and we'll find it ourselves. Men have always been a little arrogant when it comes to directions. He didn't care about the actual directions. He says, what's the destination? Where are we going? Tell me where we need to end up. And he can't hear Jesus actually telling him, hey, Thomas, the journey is, is more important than the actual destination. As a matter of fact, if you get on the right path, you're eventually going to get to the right destination. But you can't get there on your own. And I couldn't even tell you a way if, 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 if there was a way, you, would, you wouldn't be able to do it. It's actually the groom who gets you into the father's house. So just come with me is what he's saying. The goal is intimacy with Jesus. That's the goal. In verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. As to make it clear, as to them not to, they keep missing it. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The way. The hodos. In John 1, John loves this word, the way. In John 1, we're introduced to the way, saying John the Baptist came to prepare the way for the Lord, quoting Isaiah, nearly a millennia before him. Well, they've waited over 800 years, and God still hasn't shown up in a way that they expected. And so they all begin to form different opinions about how to actually access the kingdom of God, much like in today's culture. Everyone's got their own opinion about what it's going to be, what it's going to take to get to heaven what the kingdom of God really looks like. And some people think it's karma and it's good works. And if I do enough good works to outweigh the bad works, then God and his grace, uh, grace and mercy is gonna allow me in. Others think it's just pious living. If I just work so much and give up so much, others think that, you know, it's just God's just gonna dismiss their sin one day when they, when they get there. And because, you know, it's kind of the theme of many country songs. Because God's reasonable, he's going to like me because I'm a cool dude and he's going to let me in. Everybody forming their own way. And the same thing had happened here. They had four real prominent groups. I love that they had representative of these all within that group of disciples that met on the Mount of Ascension at the beginning of Acts. There's the zealots. The zealots were a group who committed to violence. They, they think that, uh, that the kingdom of God is going to come once we overthrow the Romans. And so this is like this uh, subverse militia. They're just trying to figure out ways that they can take the Romans out any way they want to. Then there's the Essenes. They're like the separatists. They decide that they're going to go to the desert and just live amongst themselves. The Rome is so evil and so dirty. We don't want anything to do with them. We're going to go live in the caves and wait in the desert for God to return and, uh, and that's when the kingdom of God will be at hand. Then there's the Sadducees. These are the realists. They basically just succumb to Rome. Like, what are we going to do? The Romans are here. They're more powerful than us. There's nothing we can do to um, get out of their control. So they, we're going to compromise where we have to just so we can survive this thing. And then there's the Pharisees. That might be the group you hear about the most. They think the kingdom of God is going to come through religious observance and personal holiness. And so... They're pious living. They're always focused on the, the pious living. It's that religious attitude. But the goal is the kingdom of God. And so they all came up with ways that we could bring 
the kingdom of God here and now. And this is really Thomas's question and why it's so important. He's really asking Jesus, of these four ways, Jesus, which one is it? Because even if you have to leave, if you tell us the destination, which one of these ways? Do we all become zealots? Do we all become Pharisees? Do we all become Sadducees? Do we all join the Essenes? What do we need to join? And Jesus' answer here is life-changing. He said, hey, Thomas, you don't have to work to discover the way, bro. There's no striving. It's not like you're in a maze trying to find the cheese. No, this, this is the journey with me. I am the hodos. I am the way. Just come with me. Just follow me. Jesus offers us access to God, to the kingdom of God. And the only way to be in God's kingdom is by knowing the king. It would be like you visiting uh, Washington, D.C. And you're a little lost and you're looking for the White House. And you roll your window down and you see a man walking with a group of other people. And you say, hey, sir, um, can you tell me how to get to the White House? And he says, well... You know, as a matter of fact, um, I'm the president of the United States. Come with me. I live there. And for you to be like, this is Thomas's attitude, nah, no, that's cool. Just tell me where it's at, bro. I'll find it on my own. And that's, in, in essence, this is what Jesus is, is, is saying. You, know, you want to know the way? You want to know the way to the kingdom of God? You want to know the way to the abundant life? You want to know the way to satisfaction and joy? You want to know the way to eternal life here and now? Not just one day after death, but life overflowing right now. You, you want to know the way? It's me. And not just believing in me. Walking with me. I'm actually headed there. And I'll bring you with me. As a matter of fact, if you found it on your own, you wouldn't be accepted. Because, you know, when you get married, the only way into your in-laws Christmas is because you married, you married, you know, the daughter. I, w without Ashley and I being married, it would be just really weird and awkward if I showed up at their, uh, at their Christmas. But I'm expected now, why? Because I married in. You see the proposal language that Jesus is, is trying to show. Hey, you want to know the way to the Father? It's with me. You, you just got to come with me. I'm the way. In a religious culture, let me remind you of this. This is a by the way statement. It's never knowledge alone. You could have the most concrete systematic theology. Like many of the Hebrew people, Jews still do. And miss Jesus. It's not just about theology. It's about walking with Jesus. John would say this in 1 John. If you're really following him, you should walk in the way that he walks. He's the way, he's the truth. The Aletheia means the reality behind all of life, not just the answer to a Jeopardy question. There was something so much deeper than this that everyone was seeking after. What is the truth? What is the magic in the cosmos? What, what really is the truth? Jesus says, I'm the way. But I'm also the truth. Everything on which life is built. John repeats this in his gospel multiple times. Calling Jesus the spirit of truth. Grace and, tr grace and truth through Jesus in John 1. First John would talk about it, that we would walk in truth. He says it several times. And this is really a quest that every person <clears throat> in all of time has been on this quest on some level. What is the secret to the good life? You know, the good life, the kind where there's joy and satisfaction and peace and rest. 
What's, what really is the good life? What's the secret? And there's so many in, in our world, Cyril, trying to figure this, this out. Through the religions of the world, maybe you get a good counselor, a yoga instructor. You're going to change churches multiple times. Maybe you seek after it in the world. I'm going to find the good life in the world through sex and fame and power and on and on. But we lay on our head on the pillow at night. That's really what we, what we really want is what's, where do I find the good life? A.W. Tozer talked about the folly in looking to other people for the good life. He says it's just the blind leading the blind. And in the midst of our confusion and in the midst of theirs, the disciples, God reveals himself. Not just in stories and books, he comes in a person. He is the word that spoke everything into existence. Out of his mouth came everything. The revelation that we long for. What is the real truth? Jesus says, I am the truth. I'm the one on whose word the foundations of our worlds and universe has been built. I am the truth. Ephesians 1, Paul talks about this. All of the blessing of the truth that we have in Jesus. And he's praying for the Ephesian church that they would have their uh, eyes of their heart enlightened, that they would know the hope, the riches of our glorious inheritance in the saints. But he wraps it up in, in verse 22. And God put all things under his, Jesus' feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The greatest gift that God the Father could have given us is Jesus himself. And this is what Jesus is saying. I am the way and the truth and the life. Now, there were three different words that the Greeks used for life. It was bios, where after it was translated into Latin, ultimately gives us our word for biology. And it speaks of the details of life. Like we need food and air and how things physically work and live. There was bios kind of life. That's important. And then there was psyche, another word that they would use that really referred to the inner life. So specifically talking about their emotional or uh, mental life, the part that distinguishes us from animals, our reasoning, our thinking. And then there was Zoe life, and this is the word that Jesus is using here. And this was a term that meant the life beyond life, spiritual life, abundant life, eternal life. What we looked at in John 10, even last week, uh, the abundant life. The quest every Greek or Jew was searching for, the good life. Where is the good life? And Jesus says, I am the life. Not only do I just give life, I am the source of actually all real, abundant life. Now, a lot of us don't like to hear that because we are independent Americans and we pull ourselves up with our own bootstraps. And we don't like to have to depend on anyone or anything for anything important. And you know what? You can work on your bios life. Maybe you go vegan. I wouldn't, intend to, I wouldn't recommend it, but maybe you try. You might lose some weight. You might sleep in some kale pajamas. 
whatever the latest fad is, this is what I'm going to do. And you know what? You might extend your life a decade. Good for you. We can work on our psyche life. Maybe we can see a good counselor. There is a powerful thing to have a good counselor on speed dial. Maybe you start journaling, you rearrange your schedule so you're not a slave to the tyranny of the urgent. Maybe you read McCown's book on essentialism. Rearrange the psyche, you get a life coach and maybe you're gonna be much more mentally stable and mentally present and that's good, good for you. you. That's a good thing. But with your greatest effort, you can't do anything about the soul about eternal life, about real peace, life after death. And upon this reality, all the religions of the world have been built because what they say is you can work your way if you're good enough, if you try hard enough, if you're lucky enough, if you're pious enough, if you're disciplined enough, you can actually work your way into heaven. You could earn this Zoe life, but the truth is you can't and they know you can't. In the end, you got to depend on Jesus, who is the source and sustainer of all life. There's actually a picture of this in Matthew 7 of people who thought by knowledge alone and pious living alone that they could actually get into heaven by their good works. You remember this warning in Matthew 7? It's a pretty chilling warning in verse 21. I don't have this on there, but you just listen, I'll, I'll read it. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven on that day, speaking of judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Well, that's a pretty good resume. Casting out demons, any of you ever done that? Accurate prophecy, mighty works. These people are getting some stuff done. And then I will declare to them, I Never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This condemnation set on them. Because it's not about all the things you do. And it's not about all the things you know. It's about who you're with. Acceptance into the kingdom of God comes through the second of the Godhead, Jesus Christ. This Zoe life is only found through Jesus. John would say this again. We talked about this on Easter, John eleven twenty five. 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Jesus is promising this to us. Through him and only through him can we have the greatest and ultimate form of life, eternal life, beginning now. Not when we die, but beginning now and lasting forever. It is the greatest reminder to all of us outside of the rat race, outside of the striving and the posing and the running, beyond the chess game of life, there is real life to be experienced and it's not about all the things you do. It's about who you know. John, who is at this very table with Jesus, one of the other gospels, shows him laying his head on Jesus' shoulders here in just a minute. He was infatuated with this. 
I mean, over a dozen times in the Gospel of John did he talk about Jesus being the life. In John 1 verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. In verse 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of Zoe, the light of life. In John 20, but these are written. This is the point of the whole book. But these are written that you may believe in Jesus, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have Zoe life. In his name. John's trying to tell us, hey, come here, got something to tell you. It's all true. We've seen it. We've beheld it with our own eyes, the glory of God. And this is important because many of us buy, buy into this myth that if we give our lives to Jesus, that all of our lives, our bios and our psyche life will get better. And in some sense, maybe that's true, but in some sense, maybe that's not true. We're praying for some of our friends who are trying to build churches thousands of miles from here in countries that have been overtaken and their very life is threatening. You could give your life to Jesus and your bios life get more dangerous. You could give your life to Jesus and your psyche life get more complicated because now you are walking with other people and you are bleeding in your heart for these people because you care so much for them. But you know what the real promise is? That you can walk through the most difficult thing that life could ever throw you. But because the inner man is being renewed, even as the outer man wastes away, you can have real joy and real peace in the midst of the craziest circumstances. Hey, go ask some of these seasoned saints that have walked through cancer or walked through separation or walked through the death of their own kids. Go, go ask them about the joy that there is to have in Jesus. That they could stand with us as a witness and they could sing from the depths of their heart about the goodness of God. Not that everything's been easy. Some things have been really hard. The first person I ever really interacted with on her deathbed was a lady named Zuma. And this was in the Willow Point days and I was getting, earning my early chops as a, as a young pastor and preacher and one of the pastors invited me to go make a house visit. And if you know me, most one-on-one -on -one interactions with me can be awkward. I'll just, we'll just get that out. It's just what it is, especially if you start crying. I just, or if I start crying, I'm just... We sat in Miss Zuma's living room and she was dazed from death. And she was in a little hospital bed there in the living room. And my gut was sick knowing going into this. This is going to be the worst visit of my life. I just am trying to get through it. Bill, why'd you bring me here? And we just watched her for an hour just brag on God. Cancer-ridden body, dazed from death. And she just, she's just praising God, breaking into hymns. We're singing with her. She would interrupt those with a few tears and prayers for other people in her life and how, how she can't wait to meet her Jesus. That's Zoe kind of life. No matter what the circumstances look like, full of hope, full of peace, full of contentment, full of passion. We can have real joy, friends, real peace, real happiness that is unknown and misunderstood by all of those outside of it. 
That's why Peter tells the early persecuted church, get ready to tell people about the hope that you have in Jesus because they will be asking. Jesus says, I am the way to the Father and his kingdom. I'm the access to the divine life. I'm the revealed truth behind the cosmos. The revelation that you long for is found in walking with me, a relationship with me. I'm the source of eternal and abundant life, the good life that you're trying to build on your own. I'm going to give it to you if you just walk with me. Thomas A. Kempis, one of the early church fathers, paraphrased it this way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Without the way, there's no going. Without the truth, there's no knowing. Without the life, there's no living. I am the way which you must must, must follow the truth that you must believe, the life for which you must hope. I am the inviolable way, the infallible truth, the unending life. I am the way that is straight, the supreme truth, the life is true and blessed, the uncreated life. If you abide in my way, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free and you shall attain life everlasting. This is what Jesus is saying. It's what he's offering to the disciples in this marriage proposal from Jesus to his followers, from the groom to the bridesmaids. I'm the groom. I'm the king in your midst, the truth that spoke everything into existence and the source of all life. He's offering this proposal to any who would say yes. To a forever relationship with him. The things that we long for are found in knowing and being loved by him. And friends, don't miss this. This is what he's inviting you and me to, even now. The same with us. You don't just wake up one day and realize you're married. Well, maybe in Vegas you do, but normally you don't. There has to be a yes in there somewhere. Someone asks the question, someone else says yes. Without a yes, there's no marriage, and it's the same with us. You have to say yes to an invitation from Jesus. It's not attending church or playing religious games. Matthew 7 reminds us it's not about all the things you do. There's a proposal. Hey, come and follow me. Come be part of my family. And he would say, hey, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you, just as the groom would. But I'm coming again to receive you into myself. So that where I am, there you may be also. I ask you that question just very boldly. Have you said yes to Jesus? Not about knowing the words of the song or when to stand or none of that. Let's put, put all the religious stuff away. Have you said yes to the offer from Jesus? When you forsook every other way and said, Jesus, I'm all in on you. Two quick other things and we're going to take communion. Jesus, after the proposal that he made right there to his followers, he tells us what the gift is going to be to the bride. His gift to the bride, the matan, would be the spirit of truth in John 16. Still this proposal language He would send the Holy Spirit that would lead us, teach us all truth, to comfort us, to give us Zoe life. Born again through the Holy Spirit, Corinthians tells us. uh, Ephesians 1 says that he's the seal. He's our promised inheritance through the Holy Spirit. 
It says in verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. His gift to the bride is the Spirit. What is the Father's gift to the bride? The life of his very own son. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That he loved the church to such an extent that he would send his own son to die in our place, to be condemned so that we could be set free, to be crushed so that we could have real life, to taste this bitter cup so we would never have to. Jesus' very life is the bride price. And we look at Jesus bloodied and beaten and dying alone on the cross. And what does he do? But he asked the father to forgive them. This is the extent of the love of the father to us. He's the way, Jesus is the way to the father because he's the only one that has intimate knowledge of God that's unmarred by sin. He's the truth because he has the perfect power of making life one coherent experience. Not dependent upon circumstances and he's the life because he was not subject to death but made it subject to him. He did not live with death as the ultimate end to his life. He died to demonstrate the power and the continuity of his life because he's the way, the truth, and the life. He is the only means, friends, of reaching the Father. Friends, have you trusted him? Are you trusting him? We're going to move to communion. As believers, we recognize that it was the third cup that Jesus would have raised. The cup of redemption, traditionally blessed and drank after the meal, it holds particular significance of our Christian faith. It was this cup that he would pick up and say in Matthew 26, take and drink, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Just as our beautiful groom has shed his own blood and redeemed his beloved, both Israel and those of every tribe and nation who'd been grafted into his covenant people by grace through faith. In accordance with the custom of the ancient Jewish bridegroom, Jesus reminds us, I go and prepare a place for you. So in a moment, we've got communion stations around the room and you don't have to be a member of our church to participate, but you do have to be a part of God's family. There has been a time in your life where you've said yes to Jesus and you've placed your faith and trust in him. And I love this. It's this beautiful, tangible reminder of these promises of God to his church. Maybe you think about these as you drink the first cup. I will bring you out from under the bondage of sin. I will free you, second cup, from your oppressor, the enemy of your own souls. Sin and death. The third cup, I will redeem you. I will buy you back. I will make payment for your sins through the cross of Christ to buy back what had been stolen. And the fourth cup, I will take you as my people. No longer orphans, but sons and daughters of the greatest, highest king 
I'm gonna pray for us. There's no rush. Phil and the group band's gonna play a little bit and we're gonna sing in a little bit, but the, the greatest thing that you could do right now is just, is just talk to Jesus. I really believe in a room this size, some of you have never said yes to Jesus. And today's the day that you step across the line of faith. You place all your chips at the center of the table. You say, Jesus, I'm all in. I've, I've tried to find life through the, the work and through the money and, and, and I've tried it every other way and I, it's just not there. And it's hard for me to believe that it's just this simple as just walking with you. But I'm gonna take a step of faith today. Others of you have been hurt by the church. And because the church was so ugly, you pronounced that ugliness of some people in the church who are flawed with sin onto Jesus. And Jesus just didn't like that. Maybe you need to meet Jesus again today. You need to reintroduce yourself to him. He knows you. Start walking with him again. Others of you, let's just be encouraged, the promise of God. That he loves us, he cares for us, he's promised to redeem us, to bring us out, to deal with sin and death. That fifth I will statement that they don't talk about a whole lot anymore is I will bring you into the land that I have prepared for you. And we long for that land, that's heaven ultimately life with Jesus. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for these words, Jesus, that you are the way and the truth and the life. Lord, would you do in our hearts what needs to be done today? I think there's some men that just need to grab the hand of their wife and apologize. for searching after the way, truth, and life through all many other things. And maybe there's some wives that need to grab the hands of their husbands and apologize. Maybe some people in this room whose hearts are against each other. Or you're very clear about this. If you come to worship and you know somebody's got something against you, you get, or, or, or you even think they have something, you need to leave your gift, go deal with that relationship, and then come back to worship. There's probably some phone calls and texts that need to be made today where we've not been walking in your way and in your truth. We've, we've taken the wheel in our own hands. Lord, I thank you for your grace, for the eager heart of the Father. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So as we take communion today, as we Obey, Holy Spirit, whatever you're telling us to do. All glory and honor to you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll be in the back if you'd like to pray with someone. Stations are here. You just come when you're ready. When you get the cup and the wafer, just take it. Um, back at your seats and partake. And we'll sing a song of worship in just a few minutes. There's some people, in the, other people in the back that would love to pray with you. Do what the Holy Spirit's leading you to do.